listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. Now, here he is, the Crusher. top speed, a certain National League hockey player wouldn't be able to skate through a school zone without getting a speeding ticket. Hockey is the fastest show on ice. Well, the fastest team show on ice anyway. I mean, you have events like ice sailing, which is really fast, ice skidooing, ice motorbike racing, but in terms of human-powered sport, hockey is fast and furious. The only other man-powered ice sport that we might talk about is actually speed skating itself, where top competition speeds reach upwards of 34 miles an hour or 54.8 kilometers per hour. But the fastest recorded skating speed on ice is 64 miles an hour or 103 kilometers per hour. Imagine. Keld Noose, who also holds the world record in the men's 1500 meters, skated in an aerodynamic wind catcher that was attached to the back of a car. It acted kind of like a wind tunnel that produced a drafting type effect, kind of like you'd see in cycling or car racing. He was also wearing a special speed suit that allowed him to absolutely tap into his top potential for speed. Imagine skating over 64 miles an hour. Talk about speeding tickets. In hockey, you don't really get a chance, of course, to be drafting behind a car, and you also don't get a long enough straightaway to ever truly reach your top speed, but if you've ever seen some of the mid-ice hits or body checks, it's more like getting hit by a Mack truck. In the game of hockey, speed is critical, but you also have things like acceleration, positioning, stick handling, shooting skills. And then you have the demands of your position, of being a forward, playing center or left or right wing, or defense, which requires a very, very different skill set. And then, of course, you have the goaltenders. Well, that's almost a different game within the game of hockey. It's a game of avoidance and positioning. You have to work with and as a team while at the very same time watching out for the opposition. I love the game and I love working with hockey players and I've been really lucky in this regard. As I worked through my degree at the University of Calgary, I worked almost full-time hours in the evenings and on the weekends in the fitness center uh, with the varsity teams and also at the Olympic Training Center, which was in Calgary, mostly centered around the winter sports, the speed skating, the alpine skiing sports, and the sliding sports, bobsleigh, skeleton, and luge. I actually wound up racing bobsled for a while. I was working with some of the athletes, and I'd frequently go out to the track to work on our push, our strides, and our entry into the bobsleigh. I realized how fast and furious and fun the sport is. I still remember my first ride down the track. It was in a two-man sled, and we did a gliding start, which means no aggressive sprint start at the very beginning. We just slowly rolled into it and picked up speed as we went. But I'm telling you, it was something else. I remember it well, and I'm not going to lie, I was a little nervous. The track did have a general public ride program where you could pay some money and get a ride with a driver in the summer and also in the winter. Uh, but they started from a good way down the course. So you never really got those top speeds and you missed the unbelievable action at the start. 
My first ride was right from the top and there's a little prep area up there. So before we started down, they gave me sort of a little orientation. They got me into the sled with the driver in front. They showed me how to position myself, where I should be hanging on and how I could stabilize myself as we went through the turns because the G-forces are incredible. And any unnecessary shifting in the back of the sled can throw the whole thing off course. So you have to get in, you have to hang on, and then brace yourselves. Well, we started going down the hill. And you don't get a chance to really enjoy the ride from a visual perspective because your head is down in the back of the driver or lower. I remember going into, I think it's the fourth or fifth turn in Calgary. It's called the Chrysler. It's a 365 degree turn. Now remember, we did what's called a sliding start. So we didn't have that big explosive push at the top but by the time we got to the 360 turn we were flying and the g-forces sucked me down into the bottom of the sled so hard it put my body into let me put it this way it put my body into position i just should not have been in i'm telling you it sucked my head right to the very floor of the bobsled and i could not lift it up that's how much force there was going into some of those turns it was incredible again you don't get the opportunity to pop your head up and have a look around you kind of have to count the number of turns and when you get into that final straightaway you kind of know it it's an extended straightaway and of course being in a two-man bob i was the brake man so i was totally responsible for decelerating the sled with the brake handles it was amazing the adrenaline rush i can't even tell you I wound up training with the guys I was training, which was kind of cool, but I also got a new appreciation for what it takes to be a world-class sliding athlete, the skill involved and the athletic prowess. It's very, very specific, which helped me help those athletes get to another level. But that was the incredible thing about being at the University of Calgary at that time. And looking back, all the hours I spent working while I was going to school totally paid off because I was around all of these different programs and all of these different athletes, watching them train inside of their sport, but also to get ready for their sport in the weight room and on the track. And I'm talking all types of athletes. We had the bobsled teams, we had the alpine ski teams, we had the freestyle ski teams, the cross country skiers, and then there were the speed skaters attached right to our training facility was the Olympic Oval. I spent a lot of time helping out and hanging around the speed skating teams, learning about their off-ice conditioning, learning about maximizing their stride, aerodynamics, and their body positions. But not just on the ice and on the track and in the weight room, it was my first real exposure to sports science and the exercise physiology labs where they're analyzing movements and recovery times. The understanding of the skating stride that gave me has helped every single hockey player I've ever worked with. You have to understand, my job in the business is to prepare athletes to the highest level possible so they can actually compete in their sport, so they can get the best sporting outcomes possible. Here's the thing. If you don't really understand the sport demands, how can you do that? I was never comfortable taking responsibility for an athlete's development for their future, even their careers, if I didn't really understand what the sport was all about. 
So I never had a problem putting myself out there and going to try things I'd never done before. Most sports I've played, and a lot of that is because I've had athletes who were involved in sports. Like, I played badminton as a kid, but I never really understood the nuances of the game of badminton till I started working with world-class badminton players. The same thing for squash. And when it came to speed skating, I'd never really been in speed skates before, and it's a totally different sensation. I played hockey all my life, but getting in those speed skates was one of the hardest transitions I've ever made because it is a totally different world. When I did get the hang of it, however, oh boy, did I get an appreciation for what those athletes do. And being involved in that sport gave me a deep understanding of the skating stride I would have never had otherwise. The hockey stride and the speed skating stride are very, very different, but they are comprised of the exact same phases. It's much like running. Running is a cyclical sport. Skating is a cyclical sport. You have a push phase, a glide phase, and a recovery phase. And there are strategies for optimizing those phases if you have the physical ability to do it. When I started working with hockey players, and I'm not talking about team fitness and general fitness programs, I'm talking taking on elite hockey players who are in the high performance pipeline or already playing elite or professional levels of the game. We break down the individual, get as much information as humanly possible, and then we map out a performance plan. Where are we at right now? How can we help this athlete increase their value immediately, but also in the long run? Just opening doors of opportunity one step at a time until you eventually find out how far the athlete can actually go in the game. So in my role, I'm not necessarily working on game tactics. I'm not talking about team strategies. You know, we will work on positioning. We'll work on anything the athlete themselves can do to make them more valuable in the game. But when it comes to the hockey side, my role is to prepare those athletes for the sport demands they're going to compete in. And that is a lot of fun if you know what you're doing. And in our programs, everything we do is to create better movers. And that's why all that time I spent hanging around the speed skaters has been very beneficial for every hockey player I've worked with. Getting that deep understanding of the skating stride has literally helped me help every single hockey player. Again, much like running, skating is that cyclical sort of motion that consists of those three phases, the push phase, the glide phase, the recovery phase. And then when it comes to straightaway speed, there's also two components there you can key in on. You have stride length and stride frequency, just like with our football players or our baseball players, rugby or soccer players, when we're doing the running movements, it's the same thing, stride length, and stride frequency. Then you also have lateral movement, crossover speed, pivots, and on-ice agility. Here's the cool thing. You can optimize all of this if you know what to look for. When we train for speed on the ice or on the track, we never ask our athletes to lengthen their strides unless we're focusing on specific power moves or slower range of motion drills. Natural stride length will increase as an athlete grows, develops, and gets stronger. Lengthening the stride too much too soon can turn out to be a disaster. For me in hockey, this is part of the long game of athlete development and in-game performance. 
we attack frequency. The more contact we have with the ice, the more often, the better. And we exaggerate this in training like you would not believe. We literally reprogram the player's nervous system and work on their recovery phase and push phase to optimize skating performance. And then as we build strength, flexibility, and range of motion, the stride length begins to increase and you get, well, magic. You get more frequency and longer strides and then you start tapping into those top competitive speeds. The average skating speed in the NHL is right around 12 miles an hour or 19 kilometers an hour with these stops and starts, the changes of direction, the accelerating and decelerating, but the top speeds reach around 25 miles an hour or 40 kilometers an hour. And it's the Edmonton and it's the Edmonton Oilers, Connor McDavid, who has the fastest recorded speed for a hockey player when he reached 25.4 miles an hour or 40.9 kilometers an hour. Yes, he's the player who would get the speeding ticket in most school zones. Speed is a big part of the game, but if all you do is skate, you'll find that your ceiling may be lower than it could be. Like any sport, playing the game will only take you so far, and this is true as well for hockey. You need to get off the ice and prepare for the game. Strength, power, endurance, agility, flexibility, the mental side, vision training is becoming a big, big part of the game, and most certainly speed. In fact, in our work, we found that about 80% of the speed we develop in the dry land setting crosses over to the ice. And then you match that with stride work on the ice, let me tell you, this is how you'll find out how fast you can really become. And I believe there's a lot of untapped speed out there just floating around the ice. returned back to the Edmonton area after my stint with the Blue Jays, I immediately started getting calls from hockey players who heard I was back in town. They wanted to see if I'd be interested in building their programs and training them through their offseason. I did. There were players from the NHL and the major junior leagues, and it was so much fun. Just a great change from being involved in baseball year-round for so many years. And I'll tell you, the strength, speed, and power we created that first summer was crazy. In fact, here's a cool story for you. Later in the summer, when we were starting to get into our preseason prep phase, we started transitioning all of our dry land training to on ice work. And we began to really focus on speed, power and explosive changes of direction. One day late in the summer, we were in the gym and it was a bike sprint day. And we were using a local gym here in town uh, because they had a good number of bikes where the guys could get on and sort of work together, you know, talk a little trash, have some fun. But I could also get everybody there at one time and we could bust it out. Now, our bike sprint days were the hardest days of the week for sure. It was the least amount of work, but it was the most intense work we would do outside of being on the ice. At first, the guys hated it, and then they learned to absolutely love it. And then something happened that blew me away. Now, we're a couple weeks before preseason camps open, so we are really starting to ramp things up and get the guys transitioning to their in-season program. This is one of the last bike sprint days of the summer before camp started. And we're at the gym, everybody's warmed up, and we hop on the bikes. 
Now, the protocols for that day was our five-minute bike sprints, which was a 20-minute sprint all out as fast as you could possibly go with a certain amount of resistance, and then easy resistance, 40-second recovery, boom, sprinting again on the minute. This would be repeated five times and five times only. Then they would cool down, go through our flexibility routines, and recover for the next day's training. All in all, with a good proper warm-up, the bike sprints and cool down, we were in and out of the gym in about 40 minutes grand total. But what happened on this day was exceptional. The guys ripped off the sprints. Now, at the start, when I introduced bike sprints to them, most of the guys were getting up to about 170, maybe 180 RPM. I wasn't happy until they got over 200. On this day, every one of the guys was over 200 RPMs. And I can't remember what the top one was. I have it in my file somewhere. But they were all well over 200 RPMs at this time. And I was proud as a peacock, of course. We get through the training program and the guys just killed it. They gave it their all and it showed, let me tell you, some of them were close to vomiting, some were close to passing out. Everybody was okay. We got through our cool down, our flexibility, and we left the gym. If I remember correctly, we started around noon. The guys were walking out just right around one o'clock. That 40 minute work period was their entire responsibility that day. And their job for the rest of the day was to recover as much as possible because the next day's training was as important. So we part ways, I'm driving home, and about 15, 20 minutes later, I get a phone call. It's the manager of the gym. Jeff, get back here right now. I'm going, huh, somebody must have forgot something. That was my first thought. So I headed back to the gym. When I got there, I walked in, and the manager was this great lady. We worked out a deal. The guys could come in and use the gym. It was fantastic. She goes, Jeff, what in the heck did you do to my bikes? I thought maybe the guys didn't clean their bikes properly. We were religious about leaving the gym in pristine condition. And I know the guys always wiped down their bikes and cleaned up after they were done. So I thought maybe some of the guys forgot or were just too tired to wipe down their bikes. So I said, what are you talking about? I said, you guys destroyed my bikes. I go, what do you mean? So she took me over to the bikes that the guys were using. She said, hop on. I said, okay, like, they look fine. She goes, start pedaling. And I started pedaling and oh boy, there was something seriously wrong. The guys were pedaling so hard, they bent the crank arms on the pedals. The pedals were literally bent on some of the bikes the guys were using. They were generating so much force. Now listen, I'd been lucky enough to be involved in in preseason testing for NHL teams, and I have never, ever seen this before. I was blown away again, proud like a peacock. I'm like pumping out my chest. I go, yeah, of course they bent these crank arms. Are you kidding me? Now, these are aluminum, cast iron, chromoly, you know, indestructible crank arms on, you know, the... Um, commercial level bikes, right? There's no way this happens. I'm not going to lie to you. I was so freaking proud that these guys did this. I said, look, I'll take care of it. We'll buy new crank arms. The brand of bike was one of my favorite brands. It's one of the reasons I set up that uh, relationship with the gym. Uh, it's one of my favorite brand of bikes. And I happened to know the owners of the company and some of the engineers. So I, I told her I'd get it taken care of right away. And she goes, darn right you are. You guys aren't coming back. I said, look, I told her what happened and she couldn't believe it either. She's like, wow, are you kidding me? I said, no, this is out of this world. So on my drive home, I phoned the company. I said, guys, look, this is what happened. They're saying, what did you say? I said, have you guys ever heard of this before? They had never heard of it before, but here's what they said. 
Crusher, I'll get with the engineers right away and we'll take care of it. Don't worry about a thing. The next week, the company had sent in these super duper souped up metal alloy indestructible crank arms that I think now are part of their high-end bikes. It's a standard part of their high-end bikes now. But how about that? I'm telling you, to generate that much power and force, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, when I was helping with the testing for the NHL, I saw some pretty incredible stuff. One player snapped the arms off of a Monarch bike during the 30-second wind gate. I've seen guys pedaling so hard that they almost rock the bike to the point where it's falling over. But until that point, I had never seen any athlete bend the crank arms of a bike during a sprint program. It was incredible, and I was like a proud papa, let me tell you. Those guys really, really worked hard that summer, and it paid off for each and every one of them. And then I think it was the next year or the year after, but it was the year of the lockout to start the season. And the guys were ready once again. They'd worked hard all summer, but now there was a delay, so we had to react. Something that happens in Edmonton every year uh, leading up to the NHL season is this event called the Perry Perns three on three. And it's literally that it's a three on three tournament that NHL guys come to major junior guys and NHL guys come for this tournament to get ready for their training camps. So so late in the summer and just before training camps, there are a ton of NHL players in town. And the rumblings had begun about a lockout and the disparity between the NHL Players Association and the owners. And everybody was starting to get the sense that the season was not going to start on time. So when it was delayed, the guys got together and they started playing a couple pickup games a week just to stay sharp. Everybody was still training, but they had these full on five on five games with the guys a couple times a week. So I made some adjustments to the program and I'd go watch the guys play whenever I could. And it was awesome because it was all set up at one of the community rinks and the ice was full of NHL players right there. And it was fun to watch because these guys were going for it. They were getting ready for competitive NHL camps. The only thing that wasn't really happening was body contact, of course, but the skill level and the speed of the game was so fun to see that up close. Well, one day... They asked me to play. <laughs> Sorry, I've been watching my guys for a couple of games. And of course, it was fun to watch and awesome. Uh, but I was about to see how literally awesome it really was. So I suited up. Now, to be very clear, I played hockey as a kid in my hometown. I played up to midget and then into the local junior hockey team for a bit. But I just didn't have the stick skills to really be effective at that higher level of the game. Plus, I was all in on baseball at that time, so I didn't really take the extra time needed to prepare for the higher levels of the game. I had the speed, had a pretty good shot in the physical game, but was just a little short, but I still totally enjoyed my time playing hockey. I still play to this very day. Here, however, just in the pregame skate around, I knew there was a whole other level of the game. The speed and accuracy of the passes alone absolutely blew me away. And this is where our perception conversation comes in. Perception, again, is going to be one of the crushed themes for 2024. And my experience with those players that day was a ground-shifting change in my perception of what the game is all about at that level. But here's the thing. That was just the warm-up. 
when the game started and the guys were competing, things changed and the game got really fast, really quick. Keep in mind that it was about 85, 90% NHL players on the ice and then some great, unbelievable junior players. And then there was me. Oh, baby. Listen, this is one of the biggest pieces of humble pie I've ever been fed. These guys weren't just fast. They were strong and agile and they were so accurate with their passing and their shooting. I couldn't believe it. Some of the passes that came to me, boom, were right on the tape, were harder than my shot, I think, for crying out loud. It was literally incredible. I'm not kidding. My brain, I'd never been involved in hockey this fast. The play was going one way, then bang, it was down the ice the other way. And just as I was making my transition, it was back on top of me already. Listen, I was literally a pylon for these guys to skate around. And it was awesome. What an incredible new perspective I now had and a new appreciation for what the game is all about at the highest levels. I did make a couple of good plays, but that would be my first and last game with those guys. I was way out of my league <laughs> on the other end, if you know what I mean. But again, that new perspective and that experience really helped me in building the programs for the guys. It's absolutely so much fun. But besides the incredible skating speed and the firmness and accuracy of the passing, the velocity of the shots, the wrist shots and the slap shots. Here's what I'll say. I decided right off the bat, I'm not going to be blocking any of those shots at any point in time. Respect, respect, respect for these guys who play the game. And while the slap shot is slowly disappearing from the game of hockey due to increased game speed and dwindling space on the ice, as well as some of the analytics out there, wrist shots and snapshots are becoming more and more the go-to choice. It just takes too long in today's game to wind up and let a shot rip from the point. And while the game is changing, the slap shot, well, it's still as fun as it's always been. The average NHL slap shot is around 100 miles an hour compared to 10 years ago when it was in the low 90s. Stick technology and athlete training have really impacted the slap shot. In fact, the hardest slap shot on record to date is 108.8 miles per hour. That's 175.5 kilometers an hour. That is one fast shot. So as the NHL season gets underway, there is plenty to watch. We're keeping our eye on teams like the Edmonton Oilers, who have two of the best players in the game today, and they are primed to make a serious run for the Stanley Cup, even though they're having a bit of a rough start, we'll be watching with interest. We're also watching to see if the Toronto Maple Leafs can finish this year. The pressure is on this team, perhaps like no other team in the league. Toronto is one of the biggest hockey markets in the world, and the media are ruthless. The pressure's on this team, not just to win for the team, but for their fans. And then there's the Buffalo Sabres, maybe the underdog, but they have some great up-and-coming talent, and I love the way they play. They were ranked third in goals last year. They made a couple of interesting moves this offseason, and we're going to watch and see if they can make the playoffs. I'm rooting for them. And then we're also keeping our eye on the Vegas Golden Knights. Look, this is an incredible story. I know the expansion draft really gave them the upper hand, but they've been able to sustain their success 
in the middle of the desert. Fans come from all over the world to watch their favorite teams play in Vegas. One, because you can get a ticket, and two, well, it's Vegas. But that organization has been fun to watch since they entered the league. Just like the Seattle Kraken, the new kid on the block, we're going to see how they fare this season. I love watching how these expansion teams come into a league and how they fare over their first five years. It's very telling. There's new strategies out there. And we also got to wonder, is there enough top-level players to keep the talent pool at the highest level possible? The NHL's plan, I think, is to expand upwards of six teams in the near future. And I'm wondering if we have that many top quality players to fill those spots. So I keep my eye on the expansion teams. So far, so good. And then to round off the top crush teams to watch this NHL season, we're keeping our eye on the Colorado Avalanche, who are one of the top picks to win it all this year, and the Boston Bruins, who just have something special going. So those are the top crush must-watch teams for this season. And then we have our players and storylines that we're keeping an eye on. Our number one player to watch this year, just like any young superstar that's coming into the league, like Sidney Crosby, for example, who we were watching before he even signed his contract with the Penguins. We were looking at how the Penguins were going to prepare him for the game. Were they going to rush him into the league? How are they going to go about preparing him for the stress and the pressures of the media, not to mention the level of play? Well, Connor Bedard is one of those players. One of those highly anticipated young players entering the NHL for his first year with the Chicago Blackhawks. Bedard tore up the world stage in his junior leagues and on the Canadian junior national team. We are watching to see how he fares at the highest level of the game. Can he adapt? Will it take him some time to adapt? And how does he respond to the new level of play? It's really fun to watch these new talented players enter the league. We'll be watching Connor Bedard with great interest as we're watching Connor McDavid. Well, simply because he's Connor McDavid. Can he come close or even surpass last year's incredible effort? He has continued to amaze and even some of the plays early in the season this year, incredible to watch. So we're watching the two corners right off the top. And we're watching Eric Carlson, who was at the very center of the NHL's biggest blockbuster deal this offseason with 101 points last season. Can he bring it again and earn his $11.5 million contract? And I've always loved goalies, from Ken Dryden to Patrick Waugh to Grant Furin, Andy Moog to Jonathan Quick and Jose Theodore, who, if you remember, wore that Canadian's toque during the very first NHL Heritage Classic in Edmonton when it was like minus 30 or something in 2003. One of the coolest things I've ever seen in sport. This season, I'm watching goaltender Linus Allmark to see if he can repeat his incredible 2022-23 performance and defend his Vesna Cup title as the league's best goaltender. And speaking of the league's top players, we're also watching Alexander Ovechkin. He's already one of the greatest goal scorers in recent history, and he's got a chance to overtake Wayne Gretzky's 894 goals for the number one spot in scoring in NHL history. He's currently at 822 goals. He needs 72 more to overtake Gretzky. Can he do it? 
And to round out our things to watch this NHL season, you have Dreisaitl, Mitch Marner, Jack Eichel, and others, along with one of my favorite players to follow for the last five to six years, the captain of the Tampa Lightning, Steve Stamkos. Can he stay healthy and help guide that team to the postseason and potentially the Stanley Cup? So much to watch, so much to learn, so much fun. As we wrap up here, I want to thank everybody for the response to our last show, which was part of our Creating Coachable Player series. It was titled The Tyranny of Talent, How It Compels and Limits Athletic Achievement and Why You Should Ignore It with Crush all-time favorite Dr. Joe Baker. I'm so glad you guys enjoyed that episode so much. I sure did. Talent and talent development and talent ID have been a fascination of mine since I started working in high-performance sport. The more we learn about it, the more fascinated I become. And from all the messages and feedback, so are you. Love it. One of the conversations that's really taken off surrounds the idea of talent ID and how literally terrible we are at predicting future performance. And we're not just terrible at the amateur and developmental levels of sport. The older players get and the farther they advance in the game they play, it's supposed to get easier to predict and extrapolate their future potential. But even that is turning out to be quite the challenge, and there are plenty of examples here. In baseball, you have the pitching legend Randy Johnson. Control problems kept him out of the majors until he was 25. It wasn't until he was 30 before he finally polished up his pitching tools enough to become the great pitcher that he did become. It was well worth the wait. A lot of pitchers don't get that kind of time. And how about Sandy Koufax? He was one of the hardest throwing pitchers of his time. He entered Major League Baseball in 1955, and it was only his fastball that kept him in the game through the early part of his career. It wasn't until 1963, when he was already 27 years old, that he had become the pitcher we remember him to be. He has three Cy Youngs, an MVP, four no-hitters, and three World Series appearances. In this modern era of baseball, I have to wonder, would we ever have gotten the chance to know Sandy Koufax? Probably not. I'm really glad it turned out the way it did. Another late-blooming talent story alike is the story of Steve Nash, who was drafted by the Phoenix Suns in 1996. He was relatively unknown and had an unimpressive start to his first four or five years in the league. And then, in 2001, five years after he's drafted, he broke out to become Steve Nashty, Captain Canada, and with MVP awards in 2005 and 2006, MV Steve. It's a cool story of late blooming talent at the highest level of the game. Like Kurt Warner, maybe my favorite late blooming professional sporting stories. He went from supermarket stock boy to arena football quarterback to NFL Europe to third string in the NFL to starting in the NFL to 28 year old Super Bowl winner and MVP. It's not just a late bloomer story, it's a late supernova story. And if you dig a little deeper into how it all rolled out for Kurt Warner, You'll understand why we always say to every single athlete we work with, don't let anybody ever tell you you can't get it done. 
You have Akeem Olajuwon, who didn't start playing basketball until he was 15 years old, which is very, very late, by the way. He's a 12-time All-Star, one-time MVP, a couple of championship rings, and the NBA's all-time leader in block shots. There's a couple of things to understand here. There's no set timeline for achieving your goals and dreams in sport, and there's no one way to get it done. Take the Cowboys' Brandon Whedon. His story is a fascinating one. He originally started off in baseball, drafted by the Yankees in 2002, where a number of injuries forced him into retirement. He went back to university at Oklahoma State, started playing football, and became the oldest first-round draft pick in the NFL when he was selected by the Browns at 29 years of age. He's now the starting quarterback for the Cowboys. And I think we have to mention Tom Brady here. I know you know the story. Unassuming, undervalued, picked 199th in the draft. He struggled a little early on, only to go on to have one of the most successful quarterback careers in the history of the NFL. And let me tell you something. There is nobody in the game of football who predicted that. No one. In baseball right now, look at Evan Carter, who was overlooked by absolutely everyone, only to become one of the Rangers' top contributors as they are deep into the playoffs this year. It's paid off and he'll be a crush player to watch for years to come. And how about the San Francisco 49ers, Brock Purdy, who was picked last in the 2002 NFL draft, earning the title of Mr. Irrelevant, who has become very, very relevant, performing as one of the NFL's top quarterbacks. Could he become the next Joe Montana or Tom Brady? We're going to watch and see because he's creating the opportunity for himself. There are countless examples of those who succeeded despite the odds and low expectations. And there have been thousands upon thousands who gave it their all only to find out that in the end, they were just a little short of being able to play in the big leagues. But as we always say, someone has to play It's really just a matter of who's going to fight, battle, and work their way there. So if you have a dream and the wherewithal to go for it, do exactly that. Go for it. Because somebody does have to play. And the only question you should ask is, why not you? There's an old Apple commercial from the late 90s that I love. It was part of the Apple Think Different advertising campaign, which, by the way, had a sizable impact on the world of advertising, just as the computer had on our daily lives. The commercial featured images of some of history's game changers, people like Thomas Edison, Muhammad Ali, Einstein, Amelia Earhart, Rick Hansen and Kermit the Frog, even Gandhi, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, among others. For some reason, the commercial grabbed me, and I remember it to this day. It was voiced by Richard Dreyfuss, and it goes like this. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of the rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. That commercial has stuck with me all these years. And it's one of the reasons why I say to each and every athlete I work with, We don't know how good you can become, but we can find out, so let's do it. 
Maybe we're some of those crazy ones. For me, that's perfectly fine. As far as I'm concerned, being one of the crazy ones and thinking differently is a big part of thinking like an athlete. I'm Jeff Kershell. The Crush Podcast is recorded in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner is Radio Influence Digital Media. Website and educational material is produced and directed by Debbie Kershell, Mrs. Crusher. Theme music, graphics, and video design by Noah Alexen of Nolexen Visual and Sound. This is season 18 of Crush Performance. To get the Crush archives and to subscribe to the show, go to jeffkershell.com and follow me on social media. Search out Crush Performance. And stay tuned for the launch of our video series coming soon on the Crush Performance YouTube channel. Thanks for joining me. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance.